Okay. All right, we're live. Cool. So we wrapped up the Dungeon World Hunt for the Black Stallions game, which was only three sessions, but we had a six episodes in the actual show. And Lee and I are going to talk about uh, what it was like to play that game and run that game and talk about maybe some advice for other people who are interested in running role-playing games and kind of what we learned from it and what we've kind of experienced otherwise. That's the thesis of this uh, paper that I hope that you will please give me my uh, graduate degree. So Sounds good to me. Yeah. Cool. So that, that was Dungeon World. I know that was the first game of Dungeon World you ran, and I've only run... At that point, I had only run uh, maybe one other one, maybe two other ones. So certainly not many. So I was also kind of a novice to that system uh, as well. So what do you think of that system, first of all, as someone running a game? I like the system a lot. I think it is uh, a lot like many of the Powered by the Apocalypse games, except crunchier. So there's something for players of more traditional uh, role-playing games um, there to sink their teeth into. Okay. I, I always found with that, I found with Dungeon World, one of the things that's tough is those seven to nine results. Like when somebody's, they're trying to do something, they're trying to defy danger in this way or that way. And of course they roll an eight, they roll a nine, they roll a seven. And then you're like, okay, shit, how do I still give you this thing? And also not, um, how do I make sure to, that you succeeded, but make it interesting? Yeah. It, the latter piece of it is definitely the hardest part. I think when I was preparing for this game, I had sort of like a, a stock set of possible responses for a seven, or nine, seven through nine roll, like, oh, you lose your weapon, or uh, your armor is damaged, or things like that, things that could apply to any situation. I do think, though, that, like you said, making it interesting is the most important thing. So something contextual is generally going to be better than something preloaded. That said, like it, it gives you, I think, additional confidence as a GM if you have something just ready to go. Yeah, we had we had played a game a while back um, with a guy who um, his response was always just to deal damage. So whenever there was a seven to nine roll, it was always okay. Well, you suffer some damage, like you don't fall off the cliff, but um, because of enough rocks falling down and whacking you in the head, you take four damage. So you all like that was always his seven to nine go to was you take some damage, and it definitely. It was easy to understand, but it never really pushed the. It never really pushed the story. Uh, I don't know if you feel the same way about. I know that isn't what we did, but I don't know if you'd feel the same way about that. Well, I think like we've played a few of these games now where we have the power by the apocalypse system, the sort of ambiguous seven to nine rolls, and one of the options there is you can take damage. But it's funny because I think uh, I really avoided that in Black Stallions, and I think you've avoided it in a few of the games we've played. And so sometimes you'll be sitting there for like minutes trying to come up with uh, what what it is, and then you're like, oh yeah, I can always just uh, uh, hurt the player. <laughs> 
And so I, I think it should still be an option and not even necessarily an option of last resort. It just shouldn't be repetitive. Like there are times when taking damage makes sense. Uh, but if you're just rolling a seven and nine on like, I don't know, your navigation roll or something like that, it really doesn't make much sense. Yeah, that was, uh, that was tough. At, at, at times we'd also, one of the stock things that I would go to is like that you lose something in the process. Like, oh, you've got to hurry and get through this. Um, there's a tunnel and you've got to hurry and get through it before the chittering goblin hordes tear you limb from limb. Okay, well, you rolled a seven. You're going to get through, but uh, you're going to leave. You have to leave something behind. And one of, one of the slightly annoying things is, especially in shorter games, the characters often don't have enough stuff that really matters that much to them. Yeah. To where it's like, oh, I guess I leave behind my dungeon rations, but this game's going to be so short. How much am I going to need those? Yeah. Yeah, that has come up in a few, few different contexts. We've, and, uh, in a game that has yet to be published that I played with my cousins, one thing that kept happening was characters would be like, I guess I lose all my clothes. So then they're just like nude doing whatever. Um, like, okay, I guess. And so, yeah, if they're characters who aren't like very armored fighters or whatever, where it's like, oh, I just have these clothes. Yeah, I'm, I'm just naked now. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I just uh, re-listened to the episode where the characters uh, encounter the bone dragon. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think like two of them ended up naked <laughs> after getting hit with the breath weapon. But I thought that kind of made sense, honestly. Like I was happy with with that outcome. Did you like the uh, bone dragon sound effects, by the way? Yeah, I did. It was yeah. just me dropping Jenga tiles. Oh, like funny. fucking around with Jenga tiles. And for a second when I was recording that and like editing it, I should say, I thought to myself, should I just get a bunch of chicken bones? And then I was like, no, that's the kind of thing that a witch thinks. I'm not <laughs> there yet. Like, okay, back off, buddy. That's funny. It's like your method acting uh, role playing. Yeah, exactly. I, I had to put on my chain mail. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed the Black Stallions game. I was wondering since uh, if uh, to, to Jeremy and Jeff, the two listeners of the podcast, um, to, to the few people who, who do listen, they might be confused that, uh, that was a continuation kind of a game that we had played that you ran a few years back, um, our Pathfinder game. That was also a lot of fun. And we were the various Black Stallion characters. So we, we played Galen and Rook and Brody and what was Carl's character's name again? I do not remember. Kay, Kaylin Weatherspear. Kalen Weatherspear, which, yeah, okay, yeah. Um, and so there were a chunk of references to that game. Did you find it, did you run into any, like, uh, challenges when it came to how to reference back to this stuff while still making it, um, like, its own story? And especially because David did not play that game with us. He was he was new to that whole scene. Yeah, I think for me, the references back was more to sort of close out a loop in my head as opposed to uh, do lots of fan service for the players because, you know, uh, I think most people who play these games, like, you know, Alex couldn't remember any of the game. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and Carl, I think, remembered a, like pieces of it, but not a lot. I mean, they're I think they're fond memories, but you don't really remember the details. You more remember like moods and silly encounters and that sort of thing. And so I was less worried about uh, being faithful to the old game or even like having a, a coherent reference now. I was more just sort of like trying to sprinkle in some um, color from the prior games, if only because like that, I have a bad habit with games of not finishing them. And I think that, you know, this served as sort of a, a farewell to that game as well. I think that's, I think that was a pretty good farewell to that. I thought that was, I thought it was cool. And uh, I forget if you had told us in advance that it was going to be kind of a continuation of the Black Stallions game. I hadn't, but I was. I think I asked various people various details about things so that okay. uh, I could reconstruct it in a way. Like I like the idea of uh, you see it in like Marvel Cinematic Universe and things like that. This like multiverse approach where um, you'll see sort of characters from different movies in like other movies, and kind of like that approach with role playing. The idea that you build this huge world and you build all these characters and then you know you don't just like put them in a box and never use them again like ideally you find ways to to breathe new life um into them and like in the black stallions game there was like the um the bone weevil character who was like sort of a throwaway npc in the pathfinder game like the the crazy goblin uh and he made an appearance in this game as well. And it's just fun to bring back like sort of, uh, um, you know, NPCs that the, that the characters have uh, in many ways, like made three dimensional. Yeah. Um, at the end of the game. So in the second, there were three sessions in the second session, at the end, we ran into Gellin, one of the Black Stallions, uh, who was uh, like the keeper of that mystical library. And then at the end of the final episode, we run into Rook. And there's kind of a reveal that you had, which was, you know, Rook was the reason that all of us came on this quest. Um, that he has like a master of disguise or shapeshifter or whatever. Um, had essentially been all of the people who had hired us or convinced us to go on this quest. Was there, um, one of the things I've had trouble with in running games is that element of like, I'm going to say conspiracy. Uh, that might not fully be the best word, but for like, there's been this plot going on this whole time and now it's revealed. And uh, there's there's too many times where in longer games, the plot just either that this conspiracy either plods out so slowly that by the time it's revealed, we've forgotten a lot of the earlier stuff. Yeah. Um, we The L5R game was a great example of that, but since it was so incredibly long, it felt like we lost a lot of the elements that were there. In high school, we played both L5R and uh, Vampire a lot. And there were times I thought that like, conspiracies if they were there were so so dragged out that you lost you lost the thread entirely or there was just so much extra shit going on that it was like I can't worry about a conspiracy there's an ogre right next to me that's more important yeah 
Um, do you have any thoughts on that of like kind of having a, a, a big plot or a conspiracy to reveal at the end for somebody? Yeah, I do. Um, I do think it relates to, um, you know, how much prep you do in these games. And I think like in the, in the older style of like Vampire the Masquerade type games, you know, they would sort of lend themselves to these like conspiracies within conspiracies. And you'd, you'd have like a lot of this stuff plotted out and then either would never come to fruition or you'd have your big reveal and people would be like, wait, who is that? Why should I care? And so I think like, uh, in the Power by the Apocalypse games, you don't really do that nearly as much. And like with this, I, um, you know, I had it set up that way, but I didn't care that much. Like in the end, like the the final confrontation is whatever the players kind of want it to be. And so, you know, I think I left it a little ambiguous whether. Rook was actually all those things, or if um, he was just trying to sort of like lie to you to throw you off balance at the very end. And like, I think you in particular, maybe it was you in particular, but sort of like resisted the idea that he he was, you know, your uh, the person who sort of like sent you on this mission in the first instance. And so to me, it wasn't super important. But I think in general, when you have like the big reveal or you're trying to, um, lay breadcrumbs for some kind of conspiracy or overarching plot, I think you need to um, do it sparingly, but at least have a few uh, details that you can sort of um, call back to, and then be flexible about the final outcome. You know, like not hinge everything on that. Okay. I got, I got two, I got two things about that. So you, you say to be flexible at the end. I'm wondering, Rook had been offering the characters like, okay, if you essentially get the these crystals bound to you, that can uh, kind of save. Uh, oops, somebody's outside my house honking their horn. Uh, like if you if you get these crystals bound to you, that can kind of not save the world, but prevent this great calamity from occurring. Um, did you? Did you have an idea in your head of like, okay, if these guys take that, what that's going to look like, or was it just going to be like, you? Did you have any thoughts in regard to that of like, like a different road that could have gone down? Yeah, although it was like so much uh, earlier. So basically, when I was like coming up with the idea for the game originally, what I wanted to do is essentially um, revive. Um, a lot of the stuff that I had plotted out for the original Pathfinder game. And so there was sort of like these um, fleeting references to like the this Lich King and the, the big bad, basically. And so I think if you guys had gone that route, there there would have been more more games. And then there would have been a there would have been a bigger bad to confront. But uh, didn't really work out that way. And I, I'm glad it didn't because I think it was much more um, contained this way. Okay. The other the other thought I had as we were talking about this, I can remember in um, games we played in high school, and even um, even some of the other games, like the Rome game. The, we played a Vampire the Masquerade game that took place kind of in ancient Rome. We played a game that took place in Tampa, a game that took place in DC, and uh, I can remember running stuff 
for David and Alex in Orlando. And I would write so much shit in advance. The apocalypse world system really pushes you to not do that. Um, did you, did you find that to be like a jarring difference or, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Like the level of prep that you put into this compared to other things and like how that affected the game. So I think that the, the level of, I think you can put in a ton of prep even into the power by the apocalypse games. But I think the way in which you prepare for it is almost like building like a D&D module or something like that. You remember like those old adventure books where it's like, now you go in this room and there's this puzzle and there's these bad guys and there's this treasure, like sort of plotting out the, the kinds of content that they might come across. Not necessarily like the way in which they come across it in a specific order and like all those things, but just having those things at your fingertip. I don't find that as interesting as like the larger plot or the larger lore or things like that. And so I end up spending a lot of my time and energy thinking about those things, even though those are the things, at least in the power by the apocalypse uh, systems that the players should be sort of generating uh, as like you play to find out. So, they, you know, they come across it on their own terms. And so I think there's a disconnect for me there because for me, I think the world building is one of the most fun things about playing these games and it should be shared. But I also think like the more someone has thought about it, the more you can just like build this unique uh, world together. And uh, I don't know that the powered by the apocalypse world always lends itself to that. One of the, one of the, uh, one of the things that we had in uh, the L5R game was we ran into the story that we were trying to tell butting heads with the system. I think Dungeon World is like much more cohesively put together than what we were doing. We were using a um, like a, a, a variation of a Powered by the Apocalypse system that someone had made and had kind of play tested and kind of, I think, stopped working on that. Yeah. Uh, Brandon Taylor of Galileo Games, I think, is who made that. Um, but we were then using a box set that was this crazy super conspiracy oriented, like here's all these things, here's all these secrets, everybody has all this, there's all this intrigue. And one of the problems I ran into was in the Powered by the Apocalypse system, you can just ask whatever, basically. And so for a long time, I was like holding back information because I found myself uh, fighting against the system. Hmm. So to tell the story about these like deep secrets that is going to take a lot of work to uncover and not just be like, well, you rolled a nine. So you get one question. <laughs> oh, fuck. You unraveled it. You pulled the one thread. Damn it. Um, I, I guess on that, I, I would just say, don't be afraid to let your players uh, explode your best laid plans. Like if they, if they roll the nine or whatever, they're going to get so much satisfaction if they do feel like they've exploded your best laid plans. And as a player, that's what I'm constantly trying to do. I'm constantly thinking to myself, like, how can I screw this up? <laughs> I knew it all along, you son of a bitch. I knew it the whole time. I've known you <laughs> I've known you for 20 years, and I we finally got it on tape. Well, it, it's just that like when you're playing a video game, you'll be like going around the level and uh you'll be like, Oh, a sign. Here's a sign for like um 
you know, the the office. You go into the office and it's like this carefully laid um, laid out level design. And be like, here's a sign for the living quarters. Oh, the living quarters door is locked. You can't go in there. And it's you can't go in there because it hasn't been created, right? Nobody spent the time to build that. In a role-playing game, you can go anywhere. And so like when you're off the grid, like that's some of the most fun you can have as a, as a player, I think. I can I can I can definitely agree with that. I think especially in games where um where we're trying to be to like have humor uh, like factor into the game more, which I think this game that was the case very much. Um I think in games where we're trying to have humor factor into things more, I think that works actually very very well because it's like, all right, well, what are these uh, let's check out the bathroom. Oh, what's the bathroom like in this place? And you can kind of just do something that's, well, maybe not meaningful to the plot. Um, it can still be fun and it can still be funny to listen to. I think that at times when you're trying to get like more serious and have like a different mood at times, uh, we can run into, we can run into those issues. And I think at times we were telling a very, in this game, I think at times we were telling a very serious story about these like dark forces and forbidden knowledge. And at other times we were like going wild where it's like, Oh, now you're in New York and there's a goblin that wants to piss on books. And there's a, um, a guy who worships two glowing balls of light. Um, did you, did you have any thoughts on like the tone and some of like the, like, like, like changes in tone that we ran into? Uh, I think we all, you, you know, we we always start out and we're like, this type of game, we're going to be more serious. Um, and I just don't really think that that's how uh, our players interact with one another. And so I think that's fine. I do think that some game systems lend themselves more to uh, seriousness than others. Like Vampire the Masquerade is so dark that it's hard to just be all jokey when you're like creating flesh golems and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think with like Dungeon World, I was much more prepared to just sort of roll with the punches on it. I think the other side of it, and this is something I've been interested to talk to you about for a while, is like the degree to which in a, in a game like players are creating content versus the GM is creating content. And so like, I think this game was a little slow to start and I was very nervous at the very beginning. And it's almost like when you pick up a new book and you start reading that book, you have no idea what's going on at the very beginning. You don't know who the main character is. You don't know like the world that he's in. You've read like maybe 10 pages and you're still like, I have no idea what's going on. That's how it is like anytime you're starting out a role playing game too. And until the players I think feel warmed up and then start spitballing with one another, you're just sort of like spoon feeding them. You're like, okay, now what do you do? Do you do X? Do you do Y? Do you do Z? You know, just because like they're never really like taking up uh, the ball and running with it at, at the beginning. But once things like kick off, then it's great. And I, I think like one of the things that made this Black Stallions game so great is like you would have characters sort of players building off one another's ideas and just spending a lot of time where basically they're doing all the work and you're just sitting back and kind of like watching it and being 
almost like a referee, like like um, jumping in here and there to like uh, keep keep things flowing. I could I could agree with that. Uh, I think in that in that game, uh, it really kicked up um, in like it's. I'm going to say intensity, but I don't mean like emotional intensity, but I think it really, really got going in that second session. Like once we, uh, once we got into that library, I think we had a better idea of who these characters were. We were kind of dealing more with uh, the characters in the serious capacity of like Carl's character having to come face to face with the idea of like, oh, you were this freed, essentially, mystical slave and now you have someone bound to you as a slave how do you respond to that what does that mean um alex's character uh though he immediately afterwards uh got involved in like hacking gellen apart pretty quickly um but he like like oh here's this information about your faith that you hold very dearly and how you can now view it in a different light not to not to do a dumb play on words there. Um, but I think, I think that really kind of kicked stuff up. And so I could, I could agree with you that like, it takes a while to get those characters down. And I can say in the game that we're playing currently the monster of the week game soon to be released soon, maybe months and months. Um, <laughs> uh, in that game there, some of the NPCs, I just had them, I didn't have almost any idea of who they were and it took a while for them to keep coming back to have any idea of who they were, or I'd have an idea. And then if I'd ask you guys like, how does this work? You would tell me something. And I was like, I meant for this character to be a joke and now you're having them uh, rip out somebody's eyeballs. Okay. Well, maybe they're not a joke anymore. Maybe they're much, much more dark than I thought they were. Hmm. Um, so I, I would agree with you and even say that like the, the NPCs and like my ideas of the plot throughout a game will often change as time goes on. And uh, I think that in longer games, it's less important in short games, but in longer games, there are even times where you need to just bail on a plot line. Mm -hmm. Like I had uh, in the L5R game, I've talked about this in one of the other uh, reflections, but there was this whole plot about these uh, like petty criminals who were pretending to be mystical ninja. And so anytime like an unexplained crime would occur, they would take credit for it and be like, oh yeah, that was us, the secret evil ninja with magical powers. You better do what we say. So they were just trying to intimidate people with that mystique. And in the end, they didn't really matter. And I really wish that I had not even bothered giving them any time of day. And when I felt that they weren't important, I wish I had earlier on thrown it out. Interesting. And, and instead I let it go toward till maybe like the, what in the episodes was the sixth episode to the very end. And there were almost 50 episodes, but towards the, like the sixth episode from the end, I was like, okay, here's this, you guys solving this plot. And in the end, it just wasn't that important. And it's like, okay, that would have maybe gone all right early on to say, well, actually the stuff you did, not that big of a thing. But at this point, and why fucking bother with it? So I remember like in, I think the Bradenton game, there came a point where you're sort of like, okay, this game has to end. Yeah. <laughs> and 
you wanted to, you had this sort of like temptation to try to tie up all the loose ends mm -hmm. but they're like a million loose ends just yeah like, oh uh like here's a, a fire genie who was in the game like for two episodes and mm -hmm. you know here's this demon character and it's like so are you saying with the ninja that like you should have just dropped it or you should have tied up the loose end uh earlier um ideally with that game i would have liked to have tied up that loose end earlier i wish i had just realized this isn't going to go any place let's just tie this up and you can have the characters then go oh there's more important things to focus on and much like much bigger fish to fry we'll focus on that and stop wasting time with this and um but even without that maybe it just being a mystery i i don't like loose ends hanging out like when we finish stuff up i do like everything to be kind of tied up together in a nice little bow and for you to go okay i get it even so much so that um some of the at the end of that l5r game which ran for a very long time david and i went back and recorded some epilogues to further tie up some stuff mm. So it was like the game had ended actually. And just when I was editing the last episode, then I was like, wait, we never explained what happened to this guy. Let's go back and figure that out. We never explained what happened to this person. Let's figure that out. And we tried to tie some of those together that otherwise wouldn't have been like, didn't get fully explained. Uh, I think when you're playing a game like the ones that we played in high school that were kind of all the hell over the place, one of the problems you have is you have so many loose ends um, because you're just, you're kind of running around and doing whatever. And, uh, it can become tough. And in that case, um, I think there are times where it's, it's all right to just drop a plot line and just drop a thread, like a story, a story thread or a story element and just say like, all right, well, we never did find out what was down that well. And like, well, maybe later on in some other game we'll discuss it or it'll come back or it'll come up in some other way. But if it's really, yeah, I, I think part of that comes, comes down to figuring out the story that you want to tell. Yeah. And not like the exact storyline, but the theme and the general motifs. And if there's something that doesn't really fit in it that well, if it was a brief distraction, that's okay. But um, like... Like there can be a movie about a conspiracy that's really, really intense and there can be a car chase in it, but it doesn't mean the movie becomes about car chases. And uh, like, I think at times we, I, I will often feel like, hold on, well, I have to explain exactly why the bad guy had uh, these really, really good drivers that could chase the, the main characters. And like, okay, Austin, just chill out, drop that shit. Yeah, I think like on the high school game point, like I remember that Tampa game, I it had so much stuff in it, and a lot of it was just like, oh, um, I read this like source book on uh, Mage the Ascension or something like that. Let me sock like how can I sock in some of this into there, and so it just becomes like this um, weird grab bag of like everything you've read in the past six months or something like that, and not necessarily anything coherent. Oh yeah, definitely that happened when we were. Um, when Trevor and I were running that Bradenton game, it just more stuff kept getting thrown in and thrown in and thrown in. Yeah, I mean, that's um, the ultimate example of that, I think. Oh, yeah, of just like anytime you it's like 
I read one of these werewolf books. Now you guys have to fight a werewolf. I read a book about wizards. Now you have to fight a wizard. Like it just kept getting crazy. Um, I know one of the many, one of the many critiques both you and I and David have had of me um, and how I run games is that I often, at least in the past, would tend to not reward players enough. Um, what's, do you have any advice for people running games in regard to like rewarding players, um, whether it's like mechanically or through storyline stuff or uh, just, just advice on that subject? Because too often I felt when I would play games... I would almost just be just punishing you guys constantly. You'd go into a room and it'd be like, ha idiots, you didn't see the ninja in the room. They shoot arrows at you. Ha-ha, fools, the Nosferatu come out of the sewers and grab you. Like, that would happen constantly. And so every every moment would you be, be you guys, like, hobbling away from a fight that you had not won, and we would just have to come back and deal with later. So what even happened? Yeah, I think that, to me, I... I don't think it really matters, like whether you're rewarding your players, like with uh, items or like plot lines or whatever. I think the 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 lens uh, that I look at it through is um, player agency, and so you know if you're substantially in control of the game and you're just sort of shuffling players from, you know menagerie to menagerie that you've created saying like isn't this a cool scene that i set up you know isn't this a cool puzzle that has only one solution like and in the case of the ninja it's like yeah you had to have aspects one or something like that or your wand of like destroying three ninjas uh, and i just say generally like if your players are driving the story then your game is going to be successful because like at its heart, I think that's what a role-playing game is, right? It's like, it's a group storytelling. Whereas um, if it's you just sort of like pulling people around by the nose, it's gonna be a failure because, um, you know, ultimately I think the players will be frustrated by that. And I think one measure of success that your games have had, uh, especially relative to the early games is now you have players who will voluntarily walk into failure right and so like i think we played the l5r game where like at the end my character just killed himself and uh we had a one where like because they they had failed to protect this woman or something like that and then uh yeah like sort of similar thing in 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 the most recent game the the fox game that we ran with carl or the familiars game that we ran with carl where it's like I don't want to give any spoilers away in case we uh, air that one. But basically, like you have uh, players doing very like risky and even um, things against their own interests, and it's because they want to drive the story along and play to find out what happens. And I think, like, if you focus on player agency, uh, that's where you're gonna uh, see the greatest benefits. I think. Yeah, I. I feel that's always, as a player, always much easier in short games to be like, okay, I'm going to do this nuts thing, or I'm going to do this thing that so obviously is dangerous. But in longer games, even if I'm trying to really play this character well, I do feel like a larger degree of hesitance to um, like kind of just jump for it right away. 
And um, I wonder when I'm running games, uh, when it comes to consequences, David and I talked about this for the L5R game about like player death, like having players, like when a character dot, well, hopefully not player death, but character death. That's what I mean. PC death. <laughs> not that like, oh, you know, Carl, he got yeah. real sick. Um, no. We got to uh, play the next game in person, guys. <laughs> yeah. The, um, we're going to play this next game while all of us are trying to drive a car at the same time. Um, where you you have... There are times in like a story where it seems like the relevant thing would be for someone to die or for a character to go away as at least like a main character. And in these big giant ensemble casts where you have like people coming and going in like a Game of Thrones type situation, you can have that in part because those characters can easily get replaced. Like their death can be important and have meaning and then other folks become more important almost. So like, it's a big deal in game of Thrones when Rob Stark gets killed and Catelyn Stark gets killed. Um, but the show doesn't stop there and it keeps going. And in fact, introduces other characters that we like hang around with for a while. Um, beyond that or near around to that time. Uh, do you think, do you have any thoughts on that when it comes to games? Because oftentimes I find myself not bending over backwards, but almost like really having to jump through some hoops in some games, especially that are supposed to be more serious or more gritty and supposed to be longer to be like, okay, how is it that you just straight up don't get killed um, as a consequence of what's going on? Yeah. Uh, uh, so like one advice for good writing in like television writing is is that you kill your sacred cows and i think like a lot of shows don't do that and they get very stale after a while so like if you're watching like community or something like that it's a great show but it has like these you know maybe five main characters something like that and they just end up doing the same stuff over and over and over again. And it's so repetitive. And the first few times things happen with those characters, it's really interesting. But after a while, you've sort of seen everything you can see about those characters. And then like toward the end of that show, like the actors start bailing on the show because they've become more successful and they keep trying to like cobble together, repeating what they used to do. Uh, similar with like friends, like any sort of long running show for the most part, it like really suffers after a while. And it's because like um, the writers didn't kill their sacred cows, right? They, 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 they can't like move or change. And I think Game of Thrones is a great example of an ensemble cast, but also uh, a set of characters that change. And in order for that change to happen, there must be sacrifice. And that includes like sacrificing characters. And I've always loved the idea of, of seeing that in games, especially in long running games. I think I've never run a game that's so long that we've been able to encompass that, but like I specifically tried to work in mechanisms in certain old games where like, okay, if your character dies, you'll be playing this character or something like that. And it'll be, it'll be a character that the player has had a lot of involvement with and a lot of input into. And I just think that that would be a great model. I think when it comes to consequences, 
it shouldn't be so much system consequences where it's like, well, um, you know, you were fighting these 10 ninjas and the, the system says you can only beat them if you bring your wand of killing 10 ninjas. And because you didn't, you know, now you have to die. I think the consequence must be that you foreshadow to the player that if he's going to take a certain action, there's a substantial risk. And then also, like in terms of making it consequential, like if say the, the player decides to do that, well, I'm gonna sacrifice myself to save this other character or to, or to advance the plot in a certain way. You should, you should allow that player to like, um, uh, like make that death have meaning. I think if you can do those things, it could probably be like some of the most um, uh, effective storytelling in a game, but I think the transition is difficult. And I, I don't, I candidly, I don't think it's something we've really been successful at. Yeah, we had in the L5R game, we ran into an issue where uh, David had, oh, can you hear my stomach? No. Oh, too bad. It had a lot to say. Um, uh, in, in the L5R game, we reached a point where David's character was so enmeshed in these conspiracies um, where he was like tied in with the scorpion drug cartels. Then the Colot had started to kind of like try to tell him, you need to be doing what we say or else we can like, uh, or else, or else um, kind of a thing. And so he was, he was so bound up by all these things. We reached a point where his character his character couldn't change. His character basically got hemmed in or roped in to the point where he's like, I don't see how this character could realistically do a lot anymore. It seems like this character's kind of run their course. And since they've run their course, um, when we, he like failed a role and I was like, maybe this happens. Maybe your character doesn't make it out of this. And we decided that that could work out and we used it as an opportunity to kind of like reveal some stuff that had not otherwise been able to be revealed that like up to then everybody had been kind of hitting brick walls where it's like, okay, well he died. And since this was the second murder in this pattern, well then that, that allowed a pattern to be established that we could follow back to the source. Um, and one of his regrets uh, was that it happened so late. He was like, I almost wish that happened earlier. So then the second character that I played could have had more meaning and could have developed more. And instead it was yeah. like, okay, well we have, I think it was like three episodes or four episodes till the very end. And I'm playing this guy who just shows up and is like, all right, I'm the person at the end here. It's like a, the Dax, Esri Dax coming in at the end of Deep Space. That is a good way to put it, where you're like, okay, there's something to this character, but not that much. Yeah. I think that, uh, well, I agree it should happen earlier, but I think it's hard, it's hard to control that. I think if you have teed up, you know, a potential transition character, then, like, there's maybe maybe some of those concerns are diminished because you can sort of, begin to see how they've already been changing and that sort of thing. I think that's, I think that could, that's a good actually piece of advice is if a character dies and the player is going to be then playing an additional character, have it be someone we've already seen 
rather yeah. than rather than be like, and I'm the new guy. I'm cousin Jeffrey. Welcome. Kind of a deal. Cool. Well, the last the last thing that I can think of that I think would be worthwhile would be uh, just to ask, since you and I have been playing these games um, to one degree or another for 20 years with one another, hmm. um, how have you noticed uh, since we've been recording these, has, how, have, how has that kind of changed stuff up? Because we had long ago, we had talked about trying to write down, take notes on these games and write stories about them or turn them into a book or turn them into something else. And now we're recording them and eventually they're getting aired as podcasts. Like how is, what, what are your thoughts on that business? Aside from it's a fruitless endeavor, Austin, stop wasting time, effort, and money. Yeah, that goes without saying. Uh, absolutely. Um, I think, uh, I think I'm ambivalent about it. I think I was very hesitant, uh, at the beginning because I thought that, you know, for me, playing these games is just like a, a chance to spend time with friends. And uh, I thought that it would bring some artificiality into it and um, maybe just chill um, how uh, people react or um, um, how people speak. And I was reluctant on that. And also, I think I've always been a bit embarrassed playing uh, role-playing games. And mm -hmm. so the idea that... Um, you know, it's out there for anyone to see, um, particularly when you're like, you know, playing a, you know, Zap Brannigan inspired like Space Cadet or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like um, so many opportunities to just look like a complete idiot. Um, so like that was part of it. Um, but honestly, like after listening to like, I think the first game you sent around, I was like, oh, this is so great. It's so great to just be able to revisit this thing. And to see it from different angles and just makes you uh, appreciate it a lot more. And I think like that it will have a huge nostalgia value as time goes on to have, have memorialized those games. I think that uh, the radio play aspect to it um, does add some artificiality to it. I do think it does. Um, take away from the sort of player agency and player driven side of things because you want it to be more uh, consumable. And it's almost like anytime you try to make something digestible, you also like cheapen and coarsen it in a way. And so, you know, I, I, I think that that's a danger, um, but I don't think it's a, a big danger. Like, I think it adds much more than it takes away. The way I always, um, one, one way I always viewed role-playing games that if you had a session that didn't go very well, I always thought about it as almost imagine you did an improv performance for no audience. It was just the people in the improv troupe. Mm -hmm. And if you had kind of a shitty or off day, it was just the four or five or however many of you are in an improv troupe. Um, and you're the only ones who saw it. And so you noticed and critiqued the shit out of exactly what you did and kind of felt down about it. Um, if you at least had an audience, even if it wasn't the best show, it was still a show that was put on for them. You still did create something for those people. And so like one of the things I value about recording these is uh, 
that even if they're not the best, so even in some sessions that are like, eh, these are a little weak, um, if it's at least moving the story forward or further developing these characters, I feel that like if, for the tiny audience of mostly just me editing the episode later, um, like at least it's it's something that was created that later on can be not only built off of, but is like lasts or remains. And I think that uh, that at times for me undercuts the sting of if the episode, if the, if the session wasn't the world's most fun. Yeah. I, I really agree with you when it comes to like, you know, what we're doing here is creating something. And even if the thing that you're creating is like the most, navel gazing thing <laughs> around like it's not something that there's ever going to be like a huge audience for or anything like that um uh, i i think it's such a great instinct to cultivate because like in general you can go through life and just uh consume and sit in front of a tv and just sort of slowly die or you can um you know at every opportunity um barth forth apocalyptica right like you're just constantly um spinning forth new things and i think that that's a really good impulse and i i think that's like one of the joys of these these role-playing games and i think that creative energy you kind of take it with you into other aspects of your life as well that's pretty cool i think that's actually a pretty good inspiring moment to end on there in that conversation sounds good to me yeah, awesome. Well, thank you very much, Lee. Uh, I appreciate it. All right, awesome. Let me let me end this. Let me end the recording.